up, everybody? You're now at your favorite stop for all things sports, politics, and culture. It's the Wake Up and Win podcast with Devon Pouncey, a production of ThatCast Network. Hey, now, say now, you're tuned in to the Wake Up and Win podcast, and I am your host, Devon Pouncey. We are here in the beautiful city of Portland, Oregon, at the Living the Dream Studios, and today... I have a special guest in studio with me. Uh, Just a brief introduction. We have Amira Rose Davis here in the studio with us. And we're going to talk about many different things, a lot of hot topics that have been floating around in society today, especially when it comes to the intersection of sports and politics. But to give you a bit of a background about Amira, she is an assistant professor of history and African-American studies at Penn State University. Also, gender and sexuality studies as well, mm-hmm. correct? Um, so, yeah, that's a little bit of a background there as far as what she does teaching. But she's also a co-host of a phenomenal femi- feminist sports podcast. The podcast is called Burn It All Down. And can you talk about what you do with that podcast and who you all co-host with a little bit? Yeah, so the podcast Burn It All Down is a team of five of us. Um, three sports journalists, Jessica Luther, Shereen Ahmed, and Lindsay Gibbs, and two historians, myself and Brenda Elsie from Hofstra University. And every week we bring you an intersectional feminist view of the news in sports. We always have uh, an interview that will, might be an athlete, a coach, a manager, a journalist, somebody from the world of sports. Then we burn all the trash things that happen in the world <laughs> of sports that week. And we also uplift and highlight what we call our badass women of the week. Um, And we tell you what's good in our lives. So we do that every week. We've been doing it for 147 straight weeks. Oh, wow. No days off. No days (laughs) off. I like it. I like Um, it. And so it's always a combination of the five of us, sometimes all five of us. Um, And then we have a few live shows that we also do. And it's a good time. We have a good time. Absolutely. Now talk about the concept of Burn It All Down. You mentioned that. You burn down mm-hmm. the nastiness, essentially, that takes place in the sports and politics world. But did you all come together collectively and create the name? How did that get agreed upon, essentially, although you have, I think, five co-hosts on the show? Yeah, certainly. So, you know, one of the reasons that they started, so um, I joined the podcast about 22 weeks in. One of the reasons that the podcast was started was um, if you've ever tried to offer opinion or say anything about sports as a woman on the internet, you'll notice that you get a lot of trolls and a lot of people who try to basically tell you that your voice doesn't matter, you're worthless. And and some of the attacks are really awful. Um, And in that moment, a lot of women in sports, in the sports world, whether they were academics or journalists, ended up kind of having a kind of private group chat where they said, this is what's going on, this is what we're being attacked for. And out of that group chat, um, my co-host along with at the time, Julie DeCaro, formed um, idea to say, well, why are we having these conversations internally just with us? We already know this, like why don't we have this in a public way and start it? And in those discussions, they came up with the name Burn It All Down to address the fact that there was things that they wanted to absolutely trash and burn. Um, and we've kind of run with that. And so when I was 
uh, lucky enough to join the show um, pretty early on, we definitely want to kind of crystallize that concept. Mm -hmm. And the idea behind it is that we all love sports. We are all fans of different sports, right? We represent a, a broad fan base. Uh, fan group, we have rivalries. You all um, play too, right? We all play. Like yeah. uh, uh, most of us played, um, and then like I certainly played up to college. Um, Shireen still, you know, goes and plays yeah. recreation. Shireen, yeah. that's my girl right yeah, there. Shireen exactly. and Jessica. So we all like ha are definitely engaged in sports in a variety of ways, um, and so that's one of the things about it is we love sports. We just don't accept the fact that we have to love them on the terms of accepting racism and misogyny and homophobia and like that's it's not necessary there's a way that we can root that out we can burn that part down and the idea is that in it, in in the wake of that in the ashes rise a better sporting world for all of us and that's the kind of motivation behind it and why we torch things every week and it feels good right? yeah it feels yeah good to be <laughs> get like, it out of here this Burn is it. awful <laughs> like this is did you see this bullshit this week like yeah. let's just you know do away with that so. absolutely absolutely and shout out to shereen and jessica those are the two co-hosts that i actually do know and, and have a good relationship with they actually came down jules you, you're in here in studio with us right now how many years ago was that when shereen and jessica came down 2016 2016 so they came down in 2016 to do a lecture at Pacific University. Um, while I was still a student there, actually, I got to host them at the colloquium we did then. And you actually made the trip down here this year for the annual colloquium that takes place at Pacific University. And you got to speak and do a lecture there last night. Yes, yes. Yeah. It was a great time. It, I was so honored to be included in the, in the long, um, illustrious history of this speaker series and to get a chance to... Um, be here with the students who are asking such great questions um, about many things, but particularly the conversations we had about um, sports and society, about gender in sports, um, about the future of women's sports um, was really, really refreshing to have such great conversations around that. And I was just so grateful to be able to come into this space and, and have um, these discussions with the community at Pacific. Shout out to Pacific. We breathe the best. I got to <laughs> show love to my alma mater here. Um, but now let's just dig into some content because, like I said, introducing you, there's a lot that I want to touch on due to the background that you have as a historian, as a professor, as a journalist, just multiple different fronts. And I would like to start off with obviously one of the heavier hitting topics that has been circulating, and that is an article you wrote called A Legacy of Incoherence. The article, uh, the main subject in the article was Kobe Bryant. Um, it's actually spoke a lot to the 2003 rape case that took place in Denver, Colorado. But before digging deeper into the actual case and to some of the points that you made in this particular article, I'd like to ask you about the process of writing the article during a time where emotions were high internationally, really, because Kobe is such a global phenomenon. Um, obviously, the way that he passed away with his daughter Gianna, with seven others who were on the helicopter as well, it was just one of the more tragic ways that anybody could have gone because of the amount of people on the helicopter and just how unexpected it was, essentially. Just speak to what the process was like, even being able to gather thoughts to write an article after the news broke. Yeah, yeah, no, it was very hard. It was probably one of the hardest things I've ever written. 
Um, we had just ref- finished recording on Sunday morning when we started getting inklings of the news coming out. Um, and the rest of my day was, you know, scrolling and, and trying to figure out what was going on and when it looked like Gianna. Um, still tough. Still tough. When it looked like Gianna was on the helicopter too, uh, it was just paralyzing. And uh, at the end of that day, I got an email um, remembering a discussion we had had years before on the podcast. And I talk a lot about restorative justice, and we can get to that in a little bit. And I talked about paths to forgiveness. And um, she asked me if I would be interested in, in thinking through these thoughts. Because even as the news was paralyzing, you could see people were starting to, you know, we live in a time of hot takes. You could see the hot takes starting to churn and, and people kind of getting feelings together. And I and I told her, um, I don't have any coherent thoughts. I have many thoughts in my head. I have, there's no coherent thoughts here, so I'm not sure I can do this. And the next day followed up and said, you know, you know, do you think you can? And my co-host really said, no, you, like I, we, they pushed me to like continue to think through this, and it took me, you know, I, I worked on just a little bit each day because it was really hard, um, and it was um, painful and it was fraught. And um, over the course of the week, as I moved through my own internal kind of process of absorbing the news and and like kind of personal mourning, and also witnessed public mourning um, and other reactions, I was able to try to take all the strands of thoughts out of my hand, um, out of my head and, and, and root around for coherence. And I ended up coming to a place where I realized, well, the incoherence is actually the point. Um, and that I came to a place where we're like, in order to have these conversations, we have to be comfortable being uncomfortable. Um, and so by the end of the week, I was had been able to kind of pull some sort of thought together that wasn't really at the end of the day, and we can talk about this in a minute. Yeah, necessarily about you know Kobe himself. It was a it was a lot more about um, the kind of the possibilities of of these conversations, and um, we got to the end of the week, and then. You know, we exist in in a news cycle with a particular kind of culture of when you can put things out and when you can't. And you know, we are faced with this possibility of like the piece not running because it wasn't seen of having like now. Now it was like the news cycle went immediate reactions to kind of just grief and tributes to people pushing back on just tributes without thinking through complexity and then here we were on Friday and even though that's the cycle of a news that's not actually like how people work like people are still in various processes of that and um, you know after some exchanges with editors essentially um, the tribute the Lakers did was on Friday night and that allowed us to kind of front it with a hook into that moment yeah. that expanded the time. So like the first paragraph was definitely like a paragraph of convenience that was able to like make it 
worthy of the news cycle again is right. the people. I so it was a it was a fraught process certainly, and it was very hard, and and um, I'm glad I did it. But then also I was like, all right, I felt really cathartic after that, and I I just want to come back away from it. Yeah. But I um, you know, and then came the the really positive response. Um, to it where I think a lot of people wrote me or communicated that they were also feeling very incoherent. Yeah. Um, and to try to work through all of that collectively. Let's talk about that response more too now because we are in an era now, a lot of people, you know, talk about the Me Too movement mm-hmm. and an era where we are seeing uh, women and even men, people of all different sexualities, people that identify as many different things come out and discuss issues surrounding rape or sexual assault, allegations, things of that sort. Just speak to the reaction that you may have expected when releasing the article in comparison to the reaction that you initially received when the article was released based on the era that we're currently in right now. Yeah, no, I was definitely ready for, like, blowback, um, which comes when you write anything publicly, quite yeah. frankly. I mean, yeah, I've very gotten, true. <laughs> like, handwritten hate letters for saying, like, the Olympics is fairly white, which tells you the level of engagement I generally expect on public pieces. So I turned off my mentions and all of that, and I was really surprised that for the first seven days when it was up and being circulated, um, it was almost all very, very positive. Mm. Um, and and I don't say positive in like a happy way, but positive in, in the sense where um, people were moved and people related to it. And um, you know, as many people have attested to, there was a lot of survivors who felt um, seen, and particularly, I think, as a black woman, the, the needle I tried to thread was on one side, this kind of rendering Kobe disposable, um, especially it was a charge led by like a lot of, it felt like a lot of predominantly white women sports writers, um, it was very easy to just kind of render him disposable and just be like, there's no kind of value here anymore. Um, and this this 2003 is the only definition of this man that we need. Yeah. And then on the other side, there was kind of black patriarchal hero worship that was like, you know, hashtag I'm, girl I'm, death. I'm, I'm guilty. You know? and like, uh, just and uh, like, being honest, you know, I'm guilty. And on that side, it was like, and this this is the only image we need. And what happens in the center of that exists a whole hell of a lot of, of people who really... Um, are in between that, those two spaces yeah, and who understand the need that, like, first of all, they, they were the same person. And moreover, um, the kind of harm and the way that people are thinking through these things has vast implications. And so for me, I tried to thread that needle. And so I think a lot of the responses I got, particularly from women of color, um, were stirring um and so that first week was actually surprising in how ready people were for that conversation yeah um and it only got i only started to get some nastiness when it got picked up the second week attached to 
Gail King. And oh. that was because, you know, new hot takes were being written. Absolutely. That took, you know, screenshot or like pieces of my piece. Yeah. When people are writing and they were like, for example, and one of the things that happens is that your piece comes, becomes disembodied. So the process that I was working through in the piece, you don't get any of that context. You just get a paragraph here, a paragraph there. And I stand by any paragraph on its own. But it's, you know, I think that's one of the things that breeds um, a little bit less engagement. And yeah. also, you know, like, we have to have an understanding. Like, I don't pick the title. Like, you know, there's choices that are made. Yeah, that, there's you know, such thing as an you, editor in a you, newsroom. Yeah, you don't have <laughs> all this kind of control over it. So one of the things that you also can tell, you can tell when people haven't read. Yeah, you know? yeah. And so there's, like, there's a lot of them that become easier to dismiss. Where you're just like, I understand where you're operating from. You also didn't read anything I said, mm -hmm. and do you? You know. And then there's of course the ones that like sting. Like I don't particularly like opening my email and being called, you know, like a fat bitch who's ugly and right. just mad because like, but you know, all the stuff that's not productive. It's not anything. It's yeah. not. It's not anything but nasty. Right. And so, like, those are the things that make me not, like, turn off my mention. Those are the things that make you, like, not want to write pieces and not want to think through conversations. And that's the consequence is that, you know, it's very, when we think about why it's hard to have some of these conversations that people are calling for, it's because we're not, it's not an abstract, like, oh, it's hard. Sometimes it's just, like, painful for a number of reasons. And sometimes it's painful because people are very mean yeah. when you even approach it. And so yeah. I think that's, you know, it was a very emotional kind of two weeks. Um, and, you know, people who assume you don't even have any kind of emotional connection to this. And it's like, how, Sway? You don't even know me. Right, You don't right. know. I've been, I've literally been in tears for a week because every time I see Gianna, like, I can't, I, burst into tears so like you, you did it today on know, the podcast exactly. like and, it's still and like people like kobe and gianna were in my estimation one of the the most prominent depictions maybe besides obama and his girls of black fatherhood yeah and my my oldest is is gianna's age it was her birthday week and my husband and gianna remind me of kobe uh, my husband and um my daughter remind me of kobe and gianna yeah and so there is power in that symbol I find immense value and and um, love for that and for that image and for the relationship he had with his daughters. Like, and that's the thing is like when I'm talking about holding multiple threads and multiple narratives together, like I'm very sincere. Yeah, I'm not absolutely. saying it for show, and so that's like part of it is like you just have to kind of be at peace with the fact that like people who aren't actually reading and sending stuff like don't a didn't read, don't have comprehension, and aren't don't even know you enough to have a good faith discussion. And at this point, like what I'm looking for is conversation. I'm not looking for the rest of the noise. Well, that's what we're here for today. We're going to have a great conversation surrounding this. And I want to talk about some of the hot takes that I saw in particular after you mentioned the Gail King and Lisa Leslie conversation, Lisa Leslie conversation. And one of them was actually in regards to the young lady that said that she was raped by Kobe Bryant and she accused Kobe Bryant of committing this crime. And I want to sort of speak to 
the notion that she's receiving a lot of backlash. And I think this is a common theme amongst athletes in general. And how do we work through trying to change the narrative of what you mentioned? And I said that I was guilty of kind of this heroism that we portray athletes as, although you have this particular situation where a young lady is accusing an athlete of rape, which, like I said, we see very often. Can you kind of speak through yeah. that narrative? Well, I mean, I think and how we how we shift yeah. the narrative too. I mean, it's, it's it's something that we have now seen across multiple industries, right? Um, we've seen it in Hollywood. We've seen it in businesses. So it's not only sports, but certainly when it's sports and when it's a black man and when it's a white woman, it flares long-standing historical um, triggers about these topics. The other thing is. 2003 was a long time ago. And the thing that I'm very cognizant of is like, in 2003 I was a freshman in high school. There are students that like, I've had conversations with, I had a conversation with one of my students who's a huge Lakers fan. And I realized like he was like four in 2003 and doesn't have recollection of the case itself. And so I think a lot of the things that you have here is that there's a lot of people for whom what that case represents is the height of rape culture, right? And it has less to do necessarily with Kobe himself, but the way his defense team acted towards her, her name was leaked to the media, her, you know, all of the kind of systematic things that we talk about that makes it hard for people to come forward. Interesting. Is one of the things that we saw here. The media, the way the media, um, really went after her the way the defense team absolutely slut shamed her made insinuations about her sexual life made um you know it, it was a textbook case of of uh slut shaming and victim shaming on the stand paired with a hungry media that absolutely disseminated her private information over and over and over again and when people are thinking about this who were there and witnessing it um one of the things they remembered is how many women point to that moment as a reason they don't disclose and so when people are having heavy feelings about 2003 a lot of times it's wrapped up with the reaction to the the whole legal proceeding and the reaction to um a young woman saying that this this harm happened yeah and i think that that is really important to understand that if for you that moment is what kind of crystallized in your mind that the voices of women don't matter or that harm inflicted on women don't matter as much as a comeback um don't matter as much as a championship that we can kind of understand that it's not just 2003 event in his life but it was a collective event the society experienced together not unlike like a OJ trial yeah um speak to somebody like myself that has had many thoughts and sentiments around this I grew up in California Mm -hmm. diehard Kobe fan my entire life I've argued from the beginning until now that he is the greatest basketball player (laughs) of all time and I will continue to argue that probably until it's my time to go but (laughs) When talking about rape in particular and talking about um, sort of patterns that we see in rape culture, 
one thing that I held on to for a very long time is, and I'm more so speaking to after the case was dismissed, mm-hmm. after it was settled, I should say, um, is that we never saw or we never heard of an accusation in regards to Kobe Bryant again. And very often you hear in regards to rape culture that many rapists and many people who are accused of rape tend to be repeat offenders. They tend to do it again. There's sort of this power struggle that comes with it, especially when you're able to get away with it. I'm not speaking to whether Kobe did it or not, but I'm just speaking from more of a general standpoint here. But you often hear that they do it again and again and again, or you often hear multiple women coming out against this man after the first woman finally had the courage to be able to speak up. Can you speak to what you would say to somebody with that mentality? Or you could speak it straight to me because I've had that mentality well, I mean, for quite I think some that time. The numbers in Jermaine, I think that the issue at hand is that the, there's possibilities of thinking through um, this event as a longer, larger conversation. So when, when Kobe issued his apology, yeah, one of the things that he said in this was, I have come to now understand through testimony, through evidence, that she did not understand this to be a consensual act. What if instead of that apology being the end of the story, it became a conversation on what consent looks like? It became a conversation about like how can we have a situation in which one person thinks there's consent and one person thinks there's not. Right. And that is a much more fruitful conversation than you know, just being like, all right, he apologized, we're moving on, bet, right? And so I think on one hand, certainly in the Me Too movement, where we're talking about things that have been suppressed for decades and decades, you definitely see patterns. But that's not always the case. There's a lot of people who are, you know, wonderful husbands and brothers and fathers and colleagues and friends who have committed harm in one way or another. And I think a lot of times the harm that we're talking about is not simply the five minute interaction that they had in Colorado, but the, the smear campaign that existed after it. And I think that we can look at that apology as an instructive moment to say, if he's saying, I've come to understand that this is what consent is and that was she did not give consent, then what if he led a larger conversation on that? And I think a lot about restorative justice. Like yeah, I'm yeah. not here to be like, that's that's it, throw, lock them up and throw away the key. I don't think that's the answer. I think right. if you believe in restorative justice and you don't like the carceral state, it requires you, it compels you to think through the ways that we can have community responses to moments of harm, whatever that harm looks like. And I think this was a moment in which there was all these windows of opportunity to collectively think about what a a kind of path or what accounting for, you know, was needed. One of the tricky things is is up until two years ago, at least, um, he was still enforcing the NDA of the case. Right. Right. And that, I mean, we just, we've seen this with Mike Bloomberg right now that the, you know, NDAs are one-sided agreements. And to be that far removed and still be enforcing an NDA 
part of restorative justice is that you center the person who was harmed and you let them take the lead. That's not something we could have done in this case because the NDA was still being reformed. I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that because my next question was going to be, who is responsible for taking the lead? And I guess we could just center it around this particular case because this is what we're talking about, but we talk about restorative justice. Who is responsible in taking that lead? Who is responsible in knowing that that lead should be taken? Kind of speak more so to that. Yeah, and so like conventionally when you talk about restorative justice, um, the idea is that you, if it's a random case, right, is that um, the, the person that was harmed sits with the person who did the harm and whoever else was impacted. Yeah. Right? Their family, their community, whatever. Right. And in those conversations, you develop pathways to to forgiveness and rehabilitation and mm. and atonement, right? Yeah. And so what what that looks like, the the point is there's not a one size fits all model. What that looks like for various things can be different. Yeah. And in this case, I think one of the things that's tricky is that because this became a public reckoning, become because this became a public moment, because this became like, you know, the public caught the kind of shrapnel from that was flying from this case, that I think one of the things that um, started to fester was that there was no kind of public moment to take even practices of restorative justice to have conversations and what that would look like in like our sports media right is diverse voices talking about this case 2003 we did not have the media media that we have yeah, now. Yeah, like we didn't sure. have that and so one of the things that happened was that the media was very complicit in steamrolling the woman involved, but also in compelling everybody to move on, even when people watching this were not necessarily there because they there was literally no space or avenue for any other type of the conversation. Yeah. Um, and I think that, that that's some of the kind of missed opportunity I'm speaking about. And I think there was a great piece, um, now I'm blanking on who wrote it, that you can clearly see that Kobe grew as a person, as many of us do. Absolutely. You can clearly see the love he had for his four girls, for Vanessa. You can see the investment he was making in women's sports. You can see that, you know, unfortunate end point. Yeah. But what we didn't have in between was any kind of like, we didn't see the process. Yeah. And I think that's, I think that for a lot of people, like I didn't necessarily need that. I'm talking about societal conversations. Right. But I think for a lot of people, that was the whiplash is that, um, that's what produced the incoherence is that there was no window into the process. There was no kind of moment of saying, oh, this is how I've come to embrace women's sports. In, yeah, in the article that you wrote, like I said, this was a great article. It was literally the most thought-provoking article that I read in regards to Kobe Bryant in any aspect since his passing. But in the article, you actually mentioned sort of, I guess the word would be rebrand of Kobe Bryant and talking about uh, and really changing his name and creating this nickname, the Black Mamba. And like I said, I'm one of those people that's guilty. Since Kobe has passed away, 
Hashtag Mamba mentality. That's me. I grew up a fan and I'm not sitting here acting as if I'm holier than thou and I don't navigate through these things correctly all the time. But that also is where I like to have conversations like this with somebody like yourself who was able to publish this in a manner that most people wouldn't. And you were able to receive the reactions and the feedbacks that you did. But sort of talk about him sort of adopting this nickname of the Black Manda, Mamba, excuse me, and the role that that played in this incoherence, essentially. Yeah, certainly. And the point I raised about this was that um, one of the disconnects that I felt and that I saw was that there's a lot of people who would say, don't even bring up 2003. It's not germane to anything we're talking about now. It's so separate. It's so in the past. Hashtag Mamba forever. Yeah. And... Part of the incoherence there points to the fact, like I was saying, that some people don't remember this, right? And so when when Kobe returned, you know, to the sport in the wake of this, um, and and you have to like remember that he was still going flying back and forth from Colorado to LA to play, and it was like the thing of movies. Like if you could design a kind of moment of an embattled superstar, like literally leaving the the courtroom getting on a plane, showing up late for a game because yeah. he's at a trial, yeah. and then sinking the game-winning shot to adoring fans. Like th- This is the images that were coming out. Yeah. And so in this moment, he wanted to separate his name, which some sponsors had run from. He lost some endorsement deals. Nike put him on the bench. Um, he wanted to separate the name Kobe Bryant from the, the, the case that was ongoing. Um, and so there's a movie Kill Bill that was out around, around the time and he invoked the idea of the Mamba, the Black Mamba at the time and that's important as well and so he called himself the Black Mamba it spoke to his ferocity on the court and his kind of lethalness but also he said like it means that I'm not going to take anything anymore like this is a mentality as he continued to stack up wins and years went by Black Mamba became deracialized into just Mamba. It became a brand. It became a shoe, a sports academy, a co-sponsored league with the NBA. Um, It was on the jerseys that the girls wore. Yeah. It um, it took on a larger meaning. And but part of what I wanted to try to hold is like, how do we hold? Like Mamba Sports Academy offering some of the best tournaments for kids in Cali, for for girls who want to play basketball. Um, how do we hold what the brand has become with the origin of the name? And like for people wow. who want to say these are disconnected, yeah. there's literally a connection that you're hashtagging, and that's what I'm saying is like it, it compels us, it requires us to sit in and be uncomfortable. And, and I'm uncomfortable our, right now. Right. <laughs> and you have to wade through that. I am. I the am. alternative is to e- engage in erasure intentionally. Yeah. The alternative is to just be like, well, we're going to forget the history of where it came from and just kind of go with the brand and, and, and be willfully ignorant about it. That's the alternative. Or we're going to only hang on to that moment and not see how the brands evolve. It becomes, in, in fact, the microcosm for the whole larger conversation we're having in the first place about Kobe Bryant. Yeah. In, in the first place. And I think that's why when I, I'm, I get very passionate about saying, no, it compels us, it requires us to be uncomfortable and engage in this because it's literally the only way we can ever 
access a new conversation. Yeah. And the more of us who have our voices able to access platforms or media platforms or podcasts, sports media, can help drive those conversations. And I take that responsibility very seriously. My goodness. Amira Rose Davis is in the studio with us right now as we are recording the, I think, 94th episode of the Wake Up and Win podcast. One of those. But I actually... It's interesting because you talk about how it changes from Black Mamba to Mamba and now what Mamba represents on so many different levels. But recently, Charles Barkley, and not even recently, he he, he kind of rehashed this notion of athletes not being a role model when, once Kobe Bryant passed away. But we obviously know about the commercial that Charles Barkley did back in the 90s, um, pretty much putting it out there that he wasn't a role model then. He sort of stuck to that in the passing of Kobe Bryant and in regards to this particular conversation. And essentially, what I want to ask is, would it do our society a greater good to separate the man from the job slash the talent as we kind of sort of are doing with Kobe Bryant, or does it not? Yeah, I mean, like, I so... A lot of people get mad when when Charles Barkley says that. I tend to be like, I'm shrugging my shoulders right now. <laughs> I uh, see. I see. <laughs> I like. I I think on the one hand, right? Like, I don't. I think athletes are people, right? Yeah. I think that they're people, and so there's people with personalities that are suited for being role models, and there's people whose personalities are not. There's people who like the spotlight, and people who do not. Like, so that to me is. Um, like I have my own kind of feelings about that but I think that this conversation we're having with Kobe is not just about him we've had the same conversation when Michael Jackson died we'll have it when Bill Cosby dies um, you know it it's going to be reoccurring which is, is part of my point um, and there's certainly like we've seen shades of it when people say like they won't listen to Chris Brown's music anymore and some people say like no like still listen to his music right and I don't and so for me, because like a lot of where I'm looking, a lot of where my vision is, is on the kind of larger societal level, right? Mm-hmm. I think that it becomes very easy. I think it's quite easy to be like, oh, I can just separate them. And part of my pushback on that is that that's your individual call. But one of the things that we see happening is that there's tangible effect to the fact that power compels one part of that person to be exalted right and only and one of the things that's really hard about athletes in these positions is that people are cheering yeah yeah and so there's a lot of people who are tuning in to watch athletes who they've been harmed by or that they've felt harmed by or whatever be exalted and I think that you know, the fact, like, for instance, that data set that I mentioned about people who point to the steamrolling of the woman involved in 2003 as reasons they do not disclose. That's a tangible effect that we have to kind of account for what we're saying is our responsibility to each other. And so I think that if, as an individual, you're in your house and you want to cut on Chris Bounds music and you want to listen to MJ, you want to watch the Cosby show, you want to look at old highlight reels, that's a personal call. 
but I don't think that that personal call becomes the kind of prescription for society. I don't think you can compel everybody else to have only the one conversation you want to have. It certainly will be easier yeah. to be like, well, everything that's on the court stays on the court, but that's not life. Like, what world... We can't, on one hand, be like, sports is inherently political and connected to all parts of society when it's cool because Kaepernick's kneeling. Yeah. And then turn around in the next breath, say, oh, no, no, this is just, like, the game, just the court, and what happens here stays here. <laughs> yeah. That's literally what we're trying to do. And, and this is impossible. We know that it's a microcosm for what's happening. We know it's interconnected with everything happening politically and socially around us. So we can't get to that moment where it would be uncomfortable to actually exist in that intersection and then be like, nah, like, actually, let's just opt out of it. Wow. 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 This is a lot here, and I'm loving every bit of it. Um, I, but I have more of kind of a general question, and it's actually going to go back to the conversation that we had in regards to Kobe Bryant saying he didn't, that he believed there was consensual sex between he and the young lady in 2003, and obviously she looked at it otherwise. But ultimately what I want to ask at this point is not necessarily what consent looks like, but what, based on, I guess, the murkiness and the gray area that is consent in, an, in itself, who or what is the deciding factor in regards to consent connecting to rape being real or not? Right. Well, I mean, I think that the hard part when we're talking about this is because it really devolves into, right, uh, one person said this, one person said that. Yeah. But, you know, I think what, what you do have in these cases is you have bruises, you have semen, you have um, vaginal tearing, you have immediate reporting. Right? You ha you have these things that happened. You have to remember that. I mean, like I don't I don't like getting into the details of the case, but I think that you know it's important to remember that. Like, this is five minutes. Instantly, she goes and, and says something. And the next day, they come and ask him, and he's he denies even ever seeing her. And then when they tell him that they have, D they have DNA evidence, he's like, oh, well, then we actually did it, right? Mm -hmm. So it like, constantly became a moving of the goalposts. Yeah. And so I think one of the things that you have in, in, in this particular case and why people talk, I think, a little bit more definitively about it, is, which is something that people generally react to. Mm -hmm. like, they're like, it's murky. How do people say survivor if they don't you know what's going on? Um, and I think that a lot of it um, is connected to the fact that the kind of rape kit process after was very consistent with what you would see in terms of the bruising and and the tearing and whatnot. And so when we talk about the defense team slut shaming, right? Yeah. They were like, well, she's had multiple partners in the last 24 hours. So her, her, her vagina is bruised because of how, how much sex she's had. Right. Right. And so those kind of ways of discounting somebody based on falsehoods and and so i think that is in terms of the particulars about this why when people are talking about it they talk about it with a little less murkiness but i think that in general you've hit the nail on the head of like why it's really hard to have these conversations but it's also one of the reasons why they're almost impossible like there's such a low conviction rate and i've already told you like i don't think that the courts are where we find the answers to oh, this yeah but um 
but that's that's the issue that we're dealing with here um, is that it's very 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 hard to prove sexual assault which is why conversations around consent are so important because a lot of times we see over and over and over is just people have no basic understanding of what it looks like um, and we cling to these outdated notions of like what it means uh, to consent to something, to the point where if you look at the case of Brock Turner, um, who was a Stanford swimmer, which you might remember because everything they wrote about him started with the fact that he was a swimmer and included his swim times as it was germane to the discussion, um, sexually assaulted a woman who was passed out and received a six-month sentence. And part of the argument of the light sentencing cited the fact that the girl was passed out drunk as if that equaled or you know gave a version of consent led her to be sexually assaulted yeah the agency is completely on the person who stuck his fingers in her vagina not on the girl who was passed out next to the garbage can ah. but that is a kind of moment in which we can see um that our our understanding how we teach sex education how we talk to people about consent is is so lacking and Brenda Tracy just want to give a shout out to she's guest of the pod does excellent work around this. right 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 around yes, comes from here exactly. in Oregon the state yes, of Oregon is. and her work particularly talking with athletes um, football teams but also other sports as well around what what consent is and looks like is some of the most important work that we have happening because a lot of times what we're seeing is that people get to uh, high school, get to college, get to, you know, professional sports, but also other occupations and are in all types of situations where they believe they've received consent and they have not. And so part of flipping the conversation is not just teaching people how to say no, but getting to a place where we're like, no, saying yes is sexy, right? Like you want to get away from this notion that like the, the people, when you ask a lot of times you do this work and you say like, well, what's preventing you? From, from literally asking, like, is does this work for you? Is yeah. this going, you know, how you want it to go? People are like, I don't want to stop and do that. And so this idea that even how we teach what it looks like to give consent, we always do it from the negative. Like, we always do it like we know what it looks like to not give consent, but what does it look like to affirm? What does it look like to, like, really be positively engaged? What are the signs of consent? Like, how... How can we build a culture around it that is not only talking about it when it's not there? Yeah. Um, and I think that that's part of it. And so none of the things, like I said, are happening in a vacuum. And what we're finding is if you're cutting sex education and you're not having access to these conversations, then you're going to, again, this won't be the last conversation because it won't be the last situation where there's murkiness. There won't yeah. be the last situation where people find themselves in situations that, you know, they have different views of consent or they had a feeling in the back of their head that maybe this is not consensual, but they're just rolling with it because they've also never seen anybody experience a consequence right, for it, right? right? And so I think that's one of the things we're dealing with here. For sure. And the last question that I'm going to have in regards to this, because, I mean, it's a lot. I'm, I'm, I'm intaking everything that you've been saying, but we also have another heavy-hitting subject that I want to talk to you about after this. And so I've been kind of thinking in my head, well, damn, how do I transition out of this heavy topic into the next heavy topic? So I guess I'll do it by way of this. 
what age should we begin teaching, talking about, and discussing uh, consent? And I think that'll help me roll over a little easier into this situation with Dwayne Wade and his child and everything that has come out about that in regards to age and just a plethora of other things. We'll get into all that, but what age do we start to really discuss, teach, and try to get humans to understand what consent is? You start consent immediately. Like, I don't know if everybody, anybody who's been in a situation, if you've had a young kid or you've been a young kid and you walk into like a room with your dad's friends or something like that, and then everybody wants to give you a hug, right? You, you tell your three-year-old, oh, go hug so-and-so, right? You're at school and the teacher's like, you know, you need a hug to get out of the classroom. Those are, those are moments with toddlers, with four-year-olds, with five-year-olds, where you can say, can I give you a hug? Mm. That's consent. Yeah. We're seeing this in more classrooms. There's a couple viral videos where a teacher will be positioned in front of the door. Or like the, actually, one of the cutest ones is it's not even a teacher. It's a little, a little kid themselves, like three or four-year-olds. And they have a chart next to them where their classmates can choose to do a wave, a hug, a handshake, or a high-five. Mm-hmm. And they point to which one they want. And whatever they point to, that person will greet them in that way. That is modeling consent. And all that's saying is, can I interact with you like this? And waiting for the response. Right? And I think that there's ways in which, and we don't even have to be talking about consent in terms of sex, right? Because a lot of it's unwanted touching. People a lot of times feel uncomfortable in situations they don't know how to get out of because since before they can remember they have been put in situations a lot of times by adults in their life sent like who think they're protecting them don't even realize that the the notions that they're getting left with is that there's times where their body is not theirs Mm -hmm. and so thinking about consent holistically really pushes us to a place where it means like if your three-year-old does not want to give your like random friend's cousin a hug Instead of being like, just give them a hug, give them a hug, give them a hug. Thinking about like, what what are you modeling when you're insisting yeah. that they do something that they're not comfortable with? And there's a way to work through moments of, of being uncomfortable with kids. You can model that too. But literally, and, and naming it consent and understanding that you're like, oh, do you want to give this person a hug? No? How about a high five? Right. Right. It doesn't mean like you're like, all right, great, fuck them. Yeah, 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 Disrespectful, but I think that sometimes it's as simple as that is realizing that there's all of these kind of moments and windows of opportunity to really demonstrate that you can't touch people. Yeah. In a variety of ways, um, without, you know, asking if it's cool with them. Yeah, absolutely. So now, let's make this transition here. Uh, Let's talk about this situation with Dwayne Wade. And just to give a brief background of it, Dwayne Wade's son, Zion, now identifies as a transgender male to female named Zaya. Um, His daughter is 12 years old and has identified as a female since she was three. Dwayne Wade has said that we've seen clips and sort of these press junkets that have come out Uh, in regards to this documentary that Dwayne Wade is doing that I believe will be released this Sunday. Um, And so, obviously, a whole lot more will 
come out in regards to this topic in the news cycle once the uh, totality of this documentary is released rather than just rather, excuse me rather than just the clips that we've seen in the lead up to the documentary being released um, but yeah he and his family they're coming out publicly in this documentary and it's it's out and about but we're starting to already see a lot of pushback especially in the black community in particular in regards to a Dwayne Wade, Gabrielle Union, their family coming out so public about a 12-year-old girl and what her sexuality is and her making her own decision in regards to what her sexuality is. And so I'm glad I have you here and it's sort of perfect timing that you are here being that you do teach uh, a gender and sexuality course at Penn State University. I guess just kind of talk about your thoughts in regards to some of the pushback that you're already seeing to the Wade family and the documentary isn't even out yet. Yeah. Well, I, I, my, my first thing I would say is I don't think that the pushback is heightened in the black community. I think that it's a misnomer that black people are any more homophobic or transphobic than white people. Oh, talk and about so, it. Like, hey, I, I want to really, hear this. <laughs> you know, I really think that there's a way that we kind of maintain that notion. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that, um, it really lets homophobic and transphobic white people off the hook to be like, oh, this oh. is a particular problem that the black community has because that's just like not actually a case. But, okay. Um, okay. you know, I think that, um, first of all, I just, like, it is amazing to to watch Zaya articulate, um, you know, her, her understanding of herself and in the world. And I think that that's incredible to do hard to do under a spotlight and I think that like first before anything I want to recognize that process um no I mean I think that the thing is that Gabrielle Union and Dwayne Wade have been so intentional about parenting and yeah. they've modeled this for years we've seen it for years um and they've modeled it um particularly around um you know for all of their kids certainly but uh, particularly with Zaya for for this is this is not necessarily anything new in terms of how unapologetically they stand up for her and not just them like um you know Zaya is, is blessed with a really dope older brother who wrote yeah. like, such a heartfelt post about always having her back and like I think that as a family they've you know educated themselves and talked about it and just said 100% we're standing in our corner and behind her back and this is this is what we're doing and you know and that's what it is and so i think that's really incredible now there's always going to be these conversations and you know a lot of them just generally bore me because i'm like it's not your life like yeah stop yeah. but um i mean actually i saw incredible outpouring of support for the wade's family and for zaya um, and I, I found like you actually had to kind of like bury yourself in the comments to start getting people who were saying other stuff. I was just like, I'm not going to go down there. Yeah. Um, but I think that certainly, obviously like, you know, people like Boozy, like people were, um, vocalizing it. And a lot of that is just based in, is, is just transphobic, right? It's a lack of understanding about the difference between gender identity and sexuality, um, and and it, you can listen to to Dwayne Wade is, is educated himself, and he's really you know he was saying 
you know, Zaya came and said, um, my gender identity is this, but I, but actually, you know, I, I don't, I'm not, I don't think I'm gay. Like I'm, my sexuality is something else. And I think that, you know, as he said, his reaction was that he needed to check himself yeah, and he needed to get educated. And I think that that's like a really great articulation of it, which is not dismissive, not saying, well, if you're not where I'm at, if you haven't evolved, if you haven't gotten yourself to this point, I'm not, again, disposing of you. I'm not saying, oh, you're not woke enough or like, I'm not saying that. But what I'm modeling to you is that I was also in a locker room saying homophobic and transphobic things. Yeah. I was also in this place, but this is my child and I have educated myself and I have followed her lead and I have taken the resources around me, right? Like Gabrielle Union is reaching out to the cast of Pose and what they did was meet her where she was and then take the responsibility to educate themselves. And I think that actually models um, something really tremendous for a lot of onlookers because what it's saying very clearly is you can read you can if you don't understand something if you're operating from a place where you're like this is new for me i don't know how to react to that not reacting in that moment is also an option not writing a comment is also an option again we, we are in this hot take moment like everything you have on your mind you have to tweet yeah. you have to respond everybody has yeah. to like know what you're thinking right and i think that there, this is a situation where you know i understand if people don't understand trans identity yeah, I understand if people, I'm one of those you people. know I, if it's it's hard to work through, and that's okay. If also we can think about what does it look like, like what tools, what resources, what would help, right? Gain a, a understanding, and at the very least, can we respect people in their existence? Yeah. Um, is there a way to have conversations around? sex, gender, and sexuality systems if you don't agree with kind of what's being put out there but as what is the there particular to, uh, system. But what is there to agree with? Yeah, like talk to me. No, but I'm, no, I'm asking, that's, like, uh-huh. what would be the disagreement or disagreeing with somebody's, like, existence? So, like, that's what I'm trying to I, understand. I, I guess um, let's take uh, religion for an mm-hmm. example. I guess you think about it from a religion, a religious standpoint and you have certain people that feel like these systems are not okay because of their religious beliefs. Um, in some cases, and I, I know I grew up around it, you have, I guess, what would be considered toxic masculinity. But you have people who grown who have grown up to this situation and have pretty much been bred as people that, you know, we talk about the locker room talk that Dwayne Wade had already mentioned, but we talk and we say and we kind of have this culture of things that we have said for a really really long time and although Dwayne Wade was able to break off of that narrative essentially all people cannot some people it's just too it's too kind of sunken into them how they feel what they believe so ultimately what I'm getting at is if you're somebody that doesn't agree because of your religion or because you have had this notion pounded into you, whether it be in the locker room, the neighborhood, the schoolhouse, you name it, 
how do we have these conversations with those people in particular? Because I do think it's still necessary to have mm-hmm. conversations with those particular people, not in a way of trying to sway them, but in a way of, I guess, trying to educate them. And how do we go about doing so when they feel so strongly against the systems that are in place? Well, I think like first the first thing to understand is that none of this is new. So just because um, people are able to be more visible and able to have um, more conversations around their identity doesn't mean anything about this moment is new. Mm-hmm. As long as there have been people, there has been there have been gay people, there have been trans people, there have been bisexual people, there have been asexual people. Uh, that has always existed, always. It exists in all mammals. Like, it's just, it just always has been there. Yeah. And so, I think one of the things that happens is people have this narrative of like, oh, this is X, Y, and Z is in my face. And I think that that's really um, unfortunate because particularly if we're talking about in religious spaces, nah, you're, you know, you've always had gay Christian people in churches. Yeah. Suffering. You've had people like Bayard Rustin on the forefront of the civil rights movement relegated to the back because he was gay. You've had repression. You've had death. You've had pain. You've had injury. You've had harm. And so I think the choice becomes, do we perpetuate that? Or do we figure out a way to love each other instead? And I think one of the things that happens is, again, people get uncomfortable and they just leave it at that. But they have you know strong opinions about what they think is kind of being forced on them or shown or whatever and then this is the moment where it's like well interrogate what it means to be heterosexual right yeah if you see four-year-old girl and a four-year-old boy you know hold the hands people will put that on facebook people will say oh he got a little girlfriend or x y and z right um you know there's this kind of assumption of you know that 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 is all of this stuff is already happening, right? Like don't don't fix your mouth to say like oh you like sexual like you sexualize kids too young when you're also in the same breath. You're like oh they're so cute like they're they're a little dating you yeah, know yeah, X yeah. Y and Z. Yeah. And the fact of the matter is we are inundated constantly with images of heterosexuality, but we don't interrogate that because we're operating from a position of power. And part of what I would encourage, particularly if we want to have like an internal conversation about the way um, black people respond to this, is that the same way that you can look at a system of power of white supremacy, the same way that you can say, you know, the people who are being oppressed sometimes have a better lens of seeing it. We can say, hey, that was a microaggression. Like, that was racist as hell because it's happening to mm-hmm. us. Right. You've been in a situation trying to explain to somebody who's white, like, what they did was racist or like how you saw something that was racist yeah. and you see those structures happening and that you look on a magazine, you look on TV, you look, you hear on the radio and all you see is a dominant representation of whiteness and white beauty standards. And you can understand that. Yeah. You can yeah. receive that. So what happens now is if you're somebody who's heterosexual, you are now in the position of power. And so maybe consider the fact that you're not seeing what people who are not in the position of power, mm-hmm. who are sexual minorities, are seeing. 
right? And so everything around you, those same radio stations and magazines and televisions, um, et cetera, are giving you the dominant standard. They're already reflecting you, which is why it's harder than for you to see when people are marginalized by that. Right. And this happens with gender as well. Yeah. If you are a man, <laughs> you know, everything is kind of showing you your positionality. It's reflecting that onto you. Mm-hmm. And it makes it harder for you to see when women are saying, oh, but this is how misogyny is working. There's an exercise that they've done with students in school. Um, and I've done this before in a classroom with like middle school age kids. And you ask them to write down the word I am. And you ask them their identity. Without fail, black kids write I am black towards the top. Yeah. Women write I am a woman. I am a girl towards the top. Um, People who are gay write I am gay towards the top. You write the identities you feel because those are the ones that aren't necessarily reflected. Right. A lot of times people aren't writing, I am a man, because it's presumed that you are. They're not writing, I am white, because it's presumed that you are. Nobody's writing, I am straight, because it's presumed that you are. So the way power works in this country is that those spaces in which people are the dominant groups, when it's normative, when it's reflected everywhere to you, when it's encouraged from, from the get, you oftentimes don't even have the capacity to see that that's an identity in and of itself. Yeah. And I think that is one of the hard process to do, especially if you're black, right? And you feel the brunt of white supremacy. It can be hard to say, you see this with black men and black women all the time. Like a lot of black men will be like, I'm a black man. Like how can I ever be also oppressing anybody? Ah. Because it's very hard for them. I guess we hear that often with like racism in right. particular. I think that's one of the things where you hear a lot of people uh, say that black people can't be racist because right. we're not the person that's in power. Right. And I guess we start to connect that with other elements right. of life. And, and I think yeah, that yeah, that's yeah. like one of, the, one of the things that happens. But I think what we're starting to see more of, um, especially in the last few years, like Black Lives Matter was founded by three queer black women. Right, mm-hmm. And part of the insistence when we're talking about activism or movement building or just generally trying to love on each other and all get free together is that if your idea, if your vision of racial equality is only racial equality by accepting you know, homophobia, accepting patriarchy, then you're not actually worried about black people getting free. You're worried about black men getting free. Ah, right? Yeah. If your version of... Um, Freedom. If your articulation of that is the freedom to rape with impunity and and to hit women or to not even in the extreme, but to subjugate in any way, Mm -hmm. then that is not a a vision of freedom that encompasses black women. If your version is only for black heterosexual people to be able to get married, then that is actually not a full vision for the black community. Because the black community has always had women and gay people and trans people in it. And so I think part of the connected conversation to this is being able to say, well, no, actually you're not pro-black if you're homophobic. Yeah. If you're misogynist. Because black gay people exist. Black trans people exist. And I think that that is a really powerful internal conversation to have. And so 
you know, to your point of like, what does it look like to not render people who are not there yet again disposable and just say, well, you need to come along and whatever. But I think one of the ways to do it is to facilitate these conversations, to have open and honest moments where you can allow people to see the fact that this is historical, people have been here, and that nobody is asking you to cede any part of yourself. And I think that's one of the things that gets hard. Is the same way that white people cling to white supremacy because it requires them to give up a little bit of power, right? It requires them to feel uncomfortable, it requires them to change a little bit. Right, right. That they think that they are giving up something for somebody else to have a seat at the table. Gotcha. And I think that's the thing about it, is that somebody else existing, literally existing in their truth, literally, you know, just living their life, does not actually take away from your ability to live yours. What does take away from people's ability to live their life is if we perpetuate these harmful um, notions of and, and, and perpetuate these power dynamics. Yeah, we will continue to see a disproportionately high murder rate and suicide rate of Black trans women. They die at high numbers. Their cases don't get solved. We'll continue to see um, like overwhelming suicide numbers for trans youth, particularly in the Black community. We'll see homelessness numbers raised. If we care at all at all about the quality of life for other people. If we care earnestly about when people are saying, I would rather take my life than live in a body that I don't feel connected to. Right, right. I would rather not exist than have people continue to misgender me. I would rather not be here, you know? And I think that is something that we really should meditate on. What person in the world knowing how awful people are would willingly say well i'm just i'm just making a choice to be this way right that's why it's so brave when people are able to step in to their truth because oftentimes the repression of that is killing them literally Like, we're not talking about figuratively. Literally, you can look at the numbers. It's killing them. And for them to be able to step in their truth, knowing that people are waiting to lurk in comments, knowing that people are writing bills to literally try to legislate them out of existence, knowing that they are more likely to be killed in a bathroom, knowing all of these things and still being willing to say, at the end of the day, this is who I am and I'm not going to hide it, is one of the bravest things. So that's why I started by saying Zaya was brave. Yeah. And it's why I commended um, Gab and and Dwayne for modeling what it means to figure out how to work on yourself. Right. And, and get to a place of support. And it shouldn't, and unfortunately, we live in a place where when something is connected to you, you have a lot more incentive to change, Right. But it shouldn't take men having a daughter to figure out that misogyny is wrong. It shouldn't take you having a gay son, right, to figure out homophobia is wrong. It shouldn't take you having a trans kid to do this, but that's where we are. And so part of what I say by saying it's always been here, it's around us, it's in our communities, 
is if we acknowledge the fact that it's easier for people to start to evolve if they have a personal connection to somebody yeah and they can see up front this person's process then making visible people who are already in existence in these communities can really help um, because I think that's you know what Dwayne Wade is saying is like you love your child you love your child and you figure out what tools you need to provide what tools you give yourself to be the best most supporting parent you can be absolutely I got one last question. I could talk to you for hours and hours and hours on hours because everything you said has been great. Um, but I got a couple of games I got to go yeah. commentate tonight. I still got to do my part, I guess. Traffic. One of them being a women's game, too. Yes, and I say, yes. yeah, I got a women's and a men's game tonight. And I and I need to start patting myself on the back a little more <laughs> for what I'm doing in, in that realm. But the last question that I have, and it's in regard to, to gender and sport. Yeah. And more so, actually, in regard to um, the cisgendered woman uh, or the woman that isn't trans, mm-hmm. per se. Um in competition because now you have we talk about we're now looking at Zaya as Dwayne Wade's daughter we're no longer looking at Zaya as Dwayne Wade's son mm-hmm. but when it comes to competition it has always been more so man versus female and we've never really been able to figure out or navigate how to incorporate the transgender identity and weave it more so into that so you're seeing situations now where you have transgender women that are competing against women who don't identify as trans and they're starting to be some backlash as far as the fairness when it comes to competition from these women who don't identify as trans competing against these trans women. How do we sort of weave our way through that because it's starting to become a pretty big issue or it, maybe it always has been a bigger a, a pretty big issue which is something you've kind of alluded to and really throughout this conversation in regards to the transgender community the lbgtq community etc cetera, etc cetera. but um yeah sort of speak to that in regards to just the women in particular and how to navigate through competition in that way yeah, like so again, history is a thing. Yeah, um, so that's why I said. Let me. That's why I have to catch myself right, because yeah. you, you've taught me. If you haven't taught me anything else today, you've taught right, me that history right. is a thing. So no, there's, there's definitely been trans athletes. Um, there's definitely you know been trans athletes at high levels of sports before. So again, this is not new. I think one of the things we have here is an unfortunate situation where people, and by people, I mean a lot of times dark money organizations, super PACs, are flooding money into states to sponsor legislations and make this an issue. Arizona is a great bill. They just passed a terrible, terrible bill, or we'll put it up to vote. Um, that's called, quote, unquote, like protecting women's sports. Um, and the numbers of young trans athletes in that case, in, in that state, are so low. And so a lot of times, a lot of these conversations are built on a bo- like on enormous falsehoods anyways, right? There'll, there'll be like an image of the beginning of a track race where, um, you know, uh, a trans woman is participating and is like a foot taller. And people be like, how is this fair? But if you actually watch the video, like she didn't even win, right? And so a lot of this conversation becomes forced when people are winning. Um, but that's one of the things that like reveals just how faulty the foundation is is 
that trans athletes have been participating just because you're trans your trans person doesn't mean you are a good athlete and we have to disentangle that um, because there are trans athletes who participate um, at, you know and try to get to high levels of sports that don't because you're not instantly a tremendous you have to work insanely hard there's a great documentary I encourage everybody to check it out on the Olympic Channel they commissioned six documentaries for trans athletes leading up to the 2016 games and one of them follows a, a volleyball player and one of the things that she says that really sticks out to me is that it, she's going it's like going through puberty backwards mm. right um, and to understand that a lot of times what you have in place are very specific conditions into which somebody is able to compete like their you know certain levels have to be achieved and whatnot and again what draws people's ear is the idea of people winning. So Terry Miller and Andrea, Andrea Yearwood, um, who are two women in, in Connecticut, who are great at track, have now been the target of a bill by name. They've targeted them by name. Um, and I think that's an instance of you, you see um, a lot of the attacks coming that way because they're good, because they won. Um, but you don't see attacks when when people are are not winning so it perpetuates perpetuates this idea that automatically trans women are naturally better athletes or when and that's that's simply just not the case but the other fact of the matter is that sports is one of our most intensely sex segregated space and it's really hard because there's a lot of policing of that binary and i think it forces us to really consider how we are policing and engaging and letting people engage with sport because a lot of this is occurring at the youth level and a lot of the people who are pushing these legislations or conversations are not the youth are not I had a student who competed against trans athletes in track and was like I wasn't pressed my mom was right the group that wanted to use me to try to pass legislation hateful legislation they th that's what they're doing they're really just trying to use people and it's become something that we see a lot of legislation being passed in this regard because it has the ability to become political issues it's, it's become political football and there's a lot of money enforcing these votes but I just want to like stop for a minute and to think about the kind of falsehood of submitting a bill saying you're protecting women's sports if you want to protect women's sports you can get resources to the game. You can demand media coverage. You can work on pay equity. You can open up access to sports, you know, for all girls in this country. If you want to protect women's sports, there's a million and one things you can actually do. You don't actually give a damn about women's sports. Like, the, the people who are forcing these bills and legislations do not care about the quote-unquote sanctity, sanctity, what I can't even say the word. Yeah, they don't yeah, yeah, care yeah. about it. Sanctity. Sanctity. They don't care. <laughs> I think. It's all bullshit. Yeah. Like, what you're really doing is you're taking a check and you're using it as the ability to force a political conversation to legislate trans people out of existence. It's just become fodder for a much larger conversation. 
And sports is, uh, again, a great laboratory for a lot of these things. The same way with race relations where you're like, it's a, it's a meet and you run. And so like you can't tell me, tell me I'm racially inferior if I'm beating you at 100 meters, right? This kind of idea that this is like a level playing field and therefore it's like a great barometer of society is why this is being, uh, being pulled into this issue. But this is not actually a sporting issue. This is a societal issue that is funneling money into these cases to try to adjudicate it out of sport and therefore parlay it into larger legislation. So that's what we have actually happening. What it looks like on the ground, though, is that people, young people, power lifters, track runners, wrestlers, who want teammates and want to play games and want to follow sports they love, and are able to do so are being pushed and forced out of sport. And it's a real shame because we're not talking about this on a professional level, generally because again, the numbers actually don't support this hypothesis like trans women are infiltrating sport and ruining it. That's again, yeah. the furthest thing from the truth. Right. And, and then I will just like end by saying, and then people also just reveal themselves to not actually have any basis of understanding about fact because in the midst of this conversation, they'll point to somebody like Castor Semenya who's intersex, who's not even trans. And so that actually tells me that you don't know anything about the issue at hand and instead, again, are using this kind of fodder. And it's disproportionately falling on black trans women, black intersex women who are bearing the brunt of this. Um, women from the global south are bearing the brunt of this and they are the ones being excluded from sport at high numbers because of this legislation and that is something that is actually troubling about what's what's happening um, is that there's a racial demographic to it that is sidelining um, a lot of black girls who, who want to run who want to compete who want to wrestle and so I think that, you know, it, this is one of those moments that is actually a larger societal kind of issue. Um, but sports will be the battleground and it, we're not going to see this is not the last of it. Unfortunately, that we will see. But um, the, the, the idea that this is challenging fairness in any way is simply hogwash. Like it, it doesn't hold. Um, there's no facts to support that. Absolutely. My goodness, what a candid conversation that we had here today, Amira. Um, I am very, 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 very grateful that you made the time on your busy trip to come out here for an entirely different engagement than this here podcast, but you've made the time to come have a great candid conversation. I would imagine that the listeners of this podcast will be very, very grateful for the information that you laid out to us and some of the things that you said that were really eye-opening, really thought-provoking, and just all-around quality content. Um, but before we wrap this thing up, where can listeners find you? Where can they find your work? How can they find the Amira Rose Davis? <laughs> yeah, you know, well, you can go to my website, amirarosedavis.com. Um, I'm at Twitter at mirarose 88 I believe. Um, check out burnitalldown.com. We're on Twitter and Instagram Absolutely. at burnitdown. Um, pod and um, yeah that's usually where I hang out um, on Twitter um, and or check out my website feel free to be in touch 
Um, and I guess that's 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 basically where I stay at. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, but yeah, it was a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on. Yeah, appreciate it. Appreciate it. On that note, we will. Uh leave you all the only way that we know how well before that make sure that you give it your all in whatever it is that you do and now we will leave you all the only way that we know how and that is to stay woke and go win <laughs>